Hey guys, this is our podcast at the Clemson Foothills Church. We're glad you found us. Join us as we discover what the Bible says about following Jesus, loving God, and serving one another. Feel free to visit our website at clemsonfoothills.com or check out the Clemson Foothills Church YouTube channel. We love learning what God says to us in His Word, and we hope this podcast helps you to do that as well. With all that said, let's dive into the episode for this week. Grateful to be together. Grateful for the opportunity to speak, to share some insights. Um, we're going to be looking at the parable of the ten bridesmaids in Matthew 25. Um, we're going to we're going to take a, a scenic route to get there. Um, so where the verses are on the context of weddings, and some of it's kind of confusing. So I took a deep dive into the context of Jewish weddings and ceremony and marriage. Um, so I'm going to read that for some of y'all. I made a big PowerPoint, and it was bad and long and not helpful. So I'm just going to read some of the, the good stuff that I found. Um, Alright, <clears throat> so to start with, the marriage process took three steps. There was an engagement, or like a, a call to marriage, and then there was the betrothal period, and then there was the actual marriage, the wedding ceremony. So to start with, Marriage took place at a really young age. It was about 12 or 13 for the girls and about 18 for the guys. And depending on if there was a time of war or what the circumstances were, you could get married a whole lot younger or older. But that was, that was the typical expected time, was teenage years. Um, in most cases, marriages were arranged by the parents. There's exceptions, and uh, it wasn't necessarily like Hollywood, where it's like this super forced thing, and the princess is like, oh, I'm miserable. Like, like if the kids were like obviously, adamantly not okay, the parents typically were like, sorry. And they'd end negotiations with whoever they wanted. So there was a lot of flexibility. So it was arranged, but um, it wasn't forced. But it's important to understand, too, that this was a lot more about survival. In the ancient world, resources are scarce. The harsh reality of winters and temperature and food and all these things played a lot more prominent role than they do today. And so it wasn't romance and like attraction and you know feelings like those were obviously still real and pleasant but that was just you couldn't really afford to make a decision just based on that and so that was why the parents would help make the decision because it was like an alliance of two families coming together a lot of times and so the the fathers would talk and propose marriage and work out details um, they would start with 
a dowry or a, a bride price. And uh, in Hebrew, it's called the mahar. So the father of the groom pays the father of the bride. You could see it. It sounds like you're purchasing a human, but this wasn't like gross gender inequality. This was actually very practical and very courteous. So because, like I was saying, resources are scarce, survival, the family of the bride is losing someone who helps contribute to their survival. And so it was actually very considerate to compensate because the family of the groom was literally gaining a daughter into their family. She came and lived with their extended family and their area. And so this wasn't like slavery. It wasn't like women are just cattle. Like this, this was a good thing. This, this wasn't like rude or mean. I'm sure someone somewhere thought, you know, the worst thing you could think of. But on average, the bride price was nice and welcome on both sides. And in the course of time, when life gets less harsh and survival is a lot easier, then the bride price goes away. It just becomes about gift giving. And um, this is cool. So I found the... Um, so even in early, early Old Testament biblical times... It was customary for a good father to give the majority, if not the whole of the mohar, to his daughter. A father who appropriated the entire mohar for himself was considered greedy, unkind, and harsh. It was also common, though not required, for the groom to give the bride his own gift or to her extended family to demonstrate his goodwill his independence, and his ability to provide. Additionally, a, a well-off father would give his daughter land or female slaves, people to help, employees, basically. So it, it wasn't... There was a lot of other stuff going on. It wasn't just like this super simple binary transaction of like, me give gold, you give wife. Like... It was, it was like today, like you send a lot of people like pay for the daughter's education and they send her off with, you know, a car and like there was still a lot of provision that went into this. So I found an ancient marriage record. This is the oldest actual Jewish marriage record ever found. It's dated back to the Babylonian exile. The marriage wasn't in Palestine or Israel, and it wasn't in Babylon, it was actually in Africa, outside of Egypt. The marriage contract of Hibliblé and someone else, these names are huge, Miktabakah and Asor, begin with a declaration of marriage. The groom asks the father for permission formally, it's, very, it's all very formal to like take his daughter and he's going to take good care of her. <clears throat> he loves her. Following the declaration of the betrothal, all terms of the marriage contract are written in detail. The groom pays the father of the bride five shekels, Persian standard, as a mohar 
bride price. So here the, the groom actually paid. Um, and then he pays the bride 65 shekels Persian standard. From this you can see that the mohar the father received for their daughters was at this point merely a nominal payment, a formality of an older custom. So I don't know when the Babylonian exile was. People argue about the timelines, but this is very early on in the context of the entire Bible. So they're not treating women as cattle. Um, so according to the marriage contract, the bride had equal rights with her husband. She has her own property, which she could bequeath as she pleased, and she had the right to pronounce a sentence of divorce against him, even as he had the right to pronounce it against her. All she had to do was appear before the court of their community and declare that she had developed an aversion to him. So that sounds pretty fickle. But that they're setting the boundary of this is how much authority and equality you have. So that's honestly a lot like today. Um, so yes, there was a marriage contract. Oh wait, time out. So this is cool. So I, when I found this document, I thought I recognized the name they said of the region outside of Egypt. And today in my Bible study, I don't even know if I have it up. I don't think I have it saved. I don't. Anyway, in Isaiah 44, in the Babylonian exile, God's talking about bringing his people back and all the good and the hope and the blessings and his vision for everyone and how much he loves them and this was really hard but like he doesn't want to just punish them and one of the things he says is I'm gonna bring back Israel and remnants from all over and one of the places he mentions is the region where this document was found I read that today in my Bible study not even thinking about this sermon at all so I thought that was kinda of cool <clears throat> All right, so there was a marriage contract. So when the two fathers come together to negotiate, sometimes the entire families would come together and detail the obligations the parties had to each other. Key aspects of this, called the ketubah, according to lots of historical important people and documents, the groom promises to support the bride, pay the bride price, in return, she must remain chaste and faithful to him. It was understood that some money should even be set aside for her in the event that he died prematurely. So basically, from the beginning of the engagement, she has a retirement account, or like life insurance, or whatever you want to think about it, in case something happens. Um, so at this point, the couple is considered legally married at the engagement, right off the bat. They didn't live together, they didn't consummate the marriage, but their relationship could only be broken by a formal divorce. If the groom dies, she is considered a widow. And this is um, this long stretch. Oh, hang on. I think I skipped something. So the two come together and there's all the vows are exchanged right there at the engagement. There's basically, it's like a rehearsal dinner 
and an informal wedding ceremony. There, sometimes rings were exchanged, sometimes uh, gifts were given, the contracts written out. And so then what happens is the son leaves and goes back to, uh, back to his own house and he starts building on a separate section of the house to live on and they're literally going to stay living with his parents. It's called the bridal chamber, but it's there, either just one room or section of the house. And so for a year, it was typical for him to leave, establish a place for them to live, and establish his own income and profession. If he wasn't already an apprentice or interning somewhere, then he had to get on that. And so he had a year where they're married but not living together, and he's establishing himself, becoming independent, and um, <clears throat> so after that long year, the betrothal period is finished. The agreements are reached between the two families. Now the wedding can take place. At a time left up to the father of the groom, he tells his son to go fetch his bride. So... The groom goes back to the bride's house and says, I'm coming to bring you to my father's house. So the groom goes with his friends, and they're all dressed to the nines. It's a big ordeal. They go to fetch his betrothed. He would wear nice clothes, sometimes even a crown. <clears throat> a procession is formed under the direction of the bridegroom's friends, and he acts as a master of ceremonies and remains by his side throughout all of this. So basically, the best man. The bride is dressed up and waiting, and the groomsmen come and pick her up. And a lot of times they would, they would have a litter and literally like carry her back. And so it was the groomsmen's job to carry her across town or wherever they were going. And this was always at night because they worked during the day. And uh, it was the bridesmaid's jobs to make sure she was ready when the announcement came that he was going to come. They didn't, they didn't like sit there for a whole year and like, oh, when's it going to come in? Like normally there was some kind of like sign of, hey, it's time. And so they didn't know the, they didn't know the exact times Time's not standardized and they don't text each other, but they had an idea and so they're waiting and they're ready and everyone's dressed up. And it was the bridesmaids' jobs to have torches or lamps and light the way back while the guys are hauling her back across town. And it's this big deal and everyone's singing and there's music and a lot of times the town would come out and kind of like either line up and watch the parade or sometimes like join in and like dance. and. So it's this big cool thing, they come back and basically then it's like rehearsal dinner 2.0, very private wedding ceremony where they read the contract aloud, the bride and the groom sign it, other witnesses sign it and the family sign it, everyone prays over them, Our religious leaders give blessings. And then uh, the bridegroom and all, no, the bride and all of her ladies 
stay in a separate part of the groom's house. So they still aren't together yet. And then they go to bed. And then the next day, it's like kind of like our wedding day morning of like kind of a slow morning and a chill, like get everyone's getting ready. And then they start like an afternoon feast and all of the guests are separated by gender. So like for the ceremony and the reception, all the women are together and the bride is with them. And then all of the men are together and the groom is with them. And so that's just some like special time, like meet and greet, catch up, give gifts, like share, pray together. And then all of the men come. So that's happening with both groups. And then the men come back and uh, dinner is served. The groom and the bride sit together and there's more blessings, there's more prayers, there's more songs. And then after dinner, then the couple goes and consummates their marriage. They didn't go on a honeymoon. They stayed in the house. And then the next day, there would be, there would be basically five to seven more days of evening wedding reception. And so this is what Jesus, this is when Jesus, uh, the wedding in Canaan, his first <clears throat> miracle in, the, in John, like two, um, there's, there's like night after night of like the entire village is <laughs> coming together to party. And so it was a lot of alcohol that he needed to make. He ends up making like a thousand bottles of wine. But it's because it was a big thing for a lot of people for like a week party. I don't know if you've ever like geeked out and done the math on how much alcohol he made, but it was a lot. And so to me, that, that makes more sense. It's like, oh, okay, well, this could have been hundreds and hundreds of people at this event. So anyways, that's where that kind of gives you some context. <clears throat> so then the whole, after that, all the communities involved and night after night they party. Um, so I, I hope, that I wanted to dive into this because weddings are all throughout the Bible. And also, there's a lot of parables and analogies of weddings that are used. I just wrote down a few off the top of my mind, thinking of, there were several examples in the Old Testament in Genesis, like Jacob and Isaac, <coughs> Rebecca, a couple other people, where this is played out. You can see these traditions being established of a dowry being paid and the wife being chosen and then brought back and like Jacob can't pay a dowry and so he works for like seven years to pay for it, uh, his wife. Um, also in John 14, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. <clears throat> I am going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place, I will come back and take you with me so that you will be where I am. So like that fits into what we're saying of this. So I hope that makes a little more sense of what Jesus is getting at, that 
that was common knowledge to them and they understood how this worked um, there's, a, there's a bunch of different even in Revelations God says that he is the groom and he's coming back to fetch his bride I couldn't find the address I think it's even in Revelation 22 like one of the last sections of the Bible um, so like marriage is literally from like Genesis to Revelation all throughout there's examples of marriage and there's a lot of references to marriage in Jesus' teachings so we're about to talk about marriage but I wanted to kind of flesh that out some I spent like way too much time studying these things but anyways I hope that was helpful um, I hope that helps in the future for you to understand the context of what people are talking about or how this works maybe even uh, start your own customs so stepping into the context of today's passage we're going to look at Matthew 25 but we're not going to jump in there just yet because I want to understand the context of what's happening and literally all of chapter 24 and 25 is Jesus giving this monologue it's recorded as a monologue maybe he didn't give it like this but it's how it's recorded he's answering a question that was asked him at the beginning of chapter 24 so if you flip back to your left depending on how big your font is it might be a couple pages um, verse 1 he says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him and called his attention to his buildings. Do you see these? He said, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Then Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives where his disciples come to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? And what happens next is probably one of the most controversial, polarizing texts in this entire book. So, um, I think the simplest way to break it down is Jesus spends most of chapter 24 answering the first question, when is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? And then after verse, am I doing that with feedback? Is something bumping? No. Um, God's like, hurry up. <laughs> so in 2436, Jesus starts to answer their second question. Now there's a lot of people that won't agree with me. And in my study in the past 36 hours, 48, however long it's been, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. That's my conclusion. Um, going back and reading this, it's called the Olivet Discourse because he's on the Mount of Olives. Um, you'll, you'll be able to understand why it's really confusing. But to set the stage, no, you, can't, you can't argue with, essentially it's split up. He's asked two questions and he answers two questions. And so... He starts with giving four to answer the second question of where we're going. In Matthew 25, he starts with explaining 
Um, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's the question that he's answering. <clears throat> and so that's where we are in Matthew 25. So this was a lot of buildup to get to the scripture. But this is confusing, and I wanted to do due diligence. So, but we're going to make this real simple. Um, Josh Fairchild, Sir Joshua, do you mind reading verses 1 through 13? Still chapter 24. 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Awesome, thank you. So in answering their question, Jesus gives four consecutive parables that are all very similar. It's all about an important figure who's absent and returns. He emphasizes the uncertainty of the time of the return. He emphasizes the necessity of some kind of appropriate preparation during his absence. And then he always details reward and punishment for either the successful or failure to prepare in what the way that was expected. So in two of the parables, the servant managing other servants and the sheep and the goats, he amplifies the aspect of individual responsibility in relation to the group of them taking care of each other. And the other two, in the parable of the talents and the bridesmaids, which is where we're at, he shows how individual responsibility expresses itself despite the presence of the group. So I hope that helps clear up some of the context that we're in, because this is a very... This can be very confusing. In this exact parable of the bridesmaids, this was, the reference itself is very simple. He's not trying to like make you get a PhD in like anything. Like, it, I mean, essentially, like everyone understood how weddings worked. He's basically saying the error that they did was you brought a flashlight and no batteries. Like, that wasn't confusing to anybody. So I want to just kind of deflate this here and say that it, it's not supposed to be like 
mystical signs and end times. Like he's not trying to be confusing, and I don't think that detail is confusing. Yeah. I also want to clean up a practical detail reading this that it wasn't mean for the wise bridesmaids to not share their oil. That's part of the point he's trying to make. So in kids' class, they might be teaching right now that sharing is caring, which is true. (laughs) In this context, that's not the point. Another practical is that everyone falls asleep, and that's not bad. So he's talking about being prepared for the end times, I don't think he's getting at the bridesmaids should have been like jacked up on caffeine, like waiting for him, like hyper ready with their hair on fire. In the same way, I don't think Jesus wants his disciples. We can jump to this like panicky, weird, like hyperbole. That's not what he's getting at. It was normal for them to fall asleep like at night. He was delayed. They dozed off. In the same way, I think we should go about our daily lives. And that's a lot of what Second Thessalonians is about, is the Christians are all like, Jesus is coming back, and, which is awesome they believed that. But Paul's like, hey, like, keep your jobs. Like, don't sell your house just to sell it. Like, we don't know when he's coming. And, um, so sleep isn't bad in this parable. Falling asleep was acceptable. One last thing I thought of was... He says five and five. I don't think that's some kind of like mystical proportion of half of everyone's saved, half of everyone's not saved. He's just, he's saying there's 10 and he split them up into two groups. And his emphasis is that there's one thing that separates them. That makes them two groups. So after spending a lot of time chewing on this, I'm going to read some of my conclusions. The ten bridesmaids represent professed disciples who claim to love the idea of his appearing and to demonstrate outward readiness for entrance into his kingdom. In appearance, the ten are indistinguishable. They were all dressed appropriately. They had what they required to carry their torch in the wedding procession. They were at the right place, at the right time, with the right people. But they were not all alike, which is the point of the parable, because they were not all prepared. The dichotomy is that five were wise and five were foolish. Now in scripture, fool primarily is the person who casts off fear of God and thinks and acts as if they can safely disregard the eternal principles of God's righteousness. And I think that applies here. The only difference between the two groups is preparedness. No reason is given for their negligence, and it's because the reason doesn't matter. They had ample warning that the bridegroom was coming and ample opportunity to be totally prepared for his arrival. Nothing could excuse this failure. The five virgins without the oil represent believers who enjoy the benefits of Christian community without true love for Christ. Did Christ not say, if you love me, you will obey me? No, I think these bridesmaids were ultimately more concerned that the par- about the party than about individual longing to see the bridegroom. 
Their hope is in their association with the true believers who will bring them into the kingdom at the end. Their lack of preparedness resulted in a lack of usefulness as well as a lack of evidence they needed to prove their association with the wedding party at the arrival of the procession at the private wedding feast. Just as a torch without fuel is obviously worthless, so is a profession of faith in Jesus without acting like him is infinitely more worthless. Infinite because the stakes are eternal. I think the fate of the unprepared is meant to admonish us that adequate preparation must be made in time. Real wisdom, according to Jesus, makes its preparation ahead of time and is not caught unawares. Wisdom is taking personal responsibility in all of these parables of going about your master's business, being prepared in any circumstance. And this is echoed, I thought of in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. He says these exact same words that he says to the virgins. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Many will say on that day, did we not prophesy, cast out demons, perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Um, So I wanted to ask some reflection points in conclusion. These are rhetorical. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. Um, Are you mentally and emotionally prepared or indifferent to his imminent return? Would the disclosure of the reunion date change anything for you? I asked myself that this week, trying to make this personal. I said, okay, let's, let's play this out. What if God says he's coming back next Friday? Ask yourself, what would your week look like then, knowing? And then I asked myself, okay, what changed? Comparing this new week that I've made in preparation, compare that to the other 45 weeks of the year that have already passed. I ask myself, what does this say about who I am? I also ask myself, what does it look like to be prepared? What does it look like to have your oil? Because that's not the point of this passage. I'm not going to make it the point of my sermon. Um, In my reflections, Omega and I were talking about this 
passage this week. I wrote down Titus chapter 2 and 2 Peter 3 as really good parallels to this passage about how we should live in the context of being prepared for Jesus' coming. And as Megan and I are talking about this, we both thought of, well, what's the unhealthy extreme of, of like, we both immediately went to like, oh, my hair's on fire, like, we're supposed to like live under a bridge and like doomsday sign and bullhorn and we just went to a weird place and I was like, why is that even a thought? Like, Jesus never did that. Um, But then trying to find a healthy middle ground, I went to the other side. (laughs) Let's not go too fast. Lots of grace. Take one day at a time. God loves us. And then it doesn't really even look like anything. So I asked myself, okay, realistically, if this is happening Friday, what changes? And there is an urgency. Paul tells Timothy to be laser-focused as if you were in the military. If you think about the, the transition from civilian life where everything is about you and you can do whatever you want, you're going to do anything except what they're doing in the military. You're not concerned about shaving your head and waking up, well, Jody is, waking up at the right time or like, you're just, that's not, the commanding officer is not your commanding officer and you do whatever you want. And so I think in the same way, like the military is a really good example for us. They're not like panicky, frantic, like doomsday they just, they, they're alert and oriented. They know what's going on. There's an enemy. We're in a war. Here's the resources. Here's the geography. Here's the numbers. Here's what needs to happen. They're organized and they're disciplined and they're focused. And they're not concerned about everything else going on in civilian life. And I think in the same way, Paul tells Timothy, you need to be that kind of focused. Elsewhere, Paul extorts, I think it's the Corinthians. He says, you need to live like an Olympic athlete. They compete like like they have to win the prize. They have to give their best and then give more. I think we give a lot of praise to fanaticism and zeal and athletics that we don't really expect out of each other. And like, what's the... What are the awards that you're getting in athletics versus the stakes here that we're talking about? So the military, Olympics, Jesus even said going about his father's will was like his sustenance, which seemed pretty radical to me. I thought those were good examples of trying to figure out, okay, what does this look like? What should we be doing? I also asked myself, why doesn't God just tell us when he's coming back? Jesus tells them, 
No one knows. Angels don't know. I don't know. Only the Father knows. It seems kind of weird when I thought about it. Like, that's not helpful. Like, if we're hosting for the holidays and extended family says, you don't know the day or the hour. We're just coming. You better be ready. I'd be like, no. (laughs) You can come after this time. We would love to have you. Not before. And please let us know when you're on the way or like give us some heads up. <laughs> like that's, that's reasonable. And so I was asking myself, okay, like why, why is this not reasonable? If God is love and he wants what's best for us, then why doesn't he disclose that time? He didn't even tell Jesus. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. I don't know the answer. What I did think of was that God often tests us to reveal what's in our hearts. I thought of like a parent or an employee. You have people under you and you give them expectations of what they should and shouldn't be doing. You leave and a lot of times you kind of want to know, what are they doing while I'm gone? And I thought of this scripture in um, Deuteronomy 13. God's talking about prophets leading his people astray. And the prophets were actually, these, these magicians are, are doing miracles. And uh, God says, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer if they call you away to follow other gods. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. I couldn't help like that somehow kind of applied to this. That somehow it's in our best interest if God cares about who we are and how we're living and how we're treating each other and our love for him. A lot of times it shows who I really am if I'm told Oh, dang. I'm going to sell myself out. So my, my wife works in Greenville. She's gone 12 hours a day. She comes, she, she gets in the car, and she'll call me around 7 p.m., and it's a 35-minute drive home. At 6.30, I will begin my chores. That's all I'm going to say. So... It's always done. Always done. Megan is always amazed at how clean the house is. Anyways, my point is, I can see in my own character that who I really am is I'm going to do what I want to do, and then I'm going to do what I have to do at the last second to get what I want. And I think this is part of why God doesn't tell us. It's for our best interest because he wants to save as many as he can. And that's why he's waiting. And it's also to help us be who we need to be and be ready. Does that help? Does that make sense? That's, that's not some... At first I felt unsatisfied with that, but I was like, that's all I got. I don't know. He didn't tell me. Um, lastly, I'll end with this. How are we doing on time? We're golden. Um... I thought it was interesting. What does he not say? 
in this in the in the parable. <clears throat> he doesn't say that five were unprepared without oil and the groom gave it to them. When he shifts out of the analogy and he's talking about his second coming, he says people will be banging on the door pleading. People in his own wedding ceremony. And he says, I'm not going to let you in. He didn't say, I will always be there for you and I would never let anything happen to you. There's a lot of scriptures where he does talk about his provision and how he will provide and meet our needs and protect us. He doesn't say that here. I thought of Luke 22. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your strength may not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Right there. He says, dude, the lion is coming for you. He says, you're on the menu. He doesn't say, I took him out. He's on a leash. It's safe. He says, I pray for you, son. <laughs> Good luck. I'm being kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I think there's something important to notice here. That a good parent lets the kid make mistakes. <clears throat> I think sometimes we can think that's not fair. It may seem harsh, cruel, selfish, petty. A few verses before this, in the same discourse, Jesus mentions the flood. We like to have that in our Sunday school coloring books and paint it on the wall in the nursery. And That was mass extermination. That wasn't fun. That wasn't cute. It wasn't nice. It was very ugly. If someone did that today, we would not consider it justice. In this passage, at the end of the other parables, the servant who wasn't living like Jesus, who wasn't living like his return, the master's return was imminent. Jesus says the punishment is, I will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The root of, That's all one word in Hebrew and that literally just means anguish of the soul. Next parable, to the Christian who couldn't sustain their own faith and relied on the association of others but was unprepared. He said, they will come and say, Lord, Lord, open the door. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. To the servant, in the parable of the talents, the servant who didn't bear fruit, you wicked and lazy servant. I will throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the parable of the sheep and the goats to the Christian who isn't welcoming, generous, 
with their home, clothes, food, or helping the marginalized who are sick and in prison. He says, depart from me, you who are accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and they will go away to eternal punishment. In Luke 13, the parable of the fig tree, Jesus says, Jerusalem is like an orchard that isn't bearing fruit. They consume inputs and there is no output. Tear them down. Why should they use up the soil? In the Old Testament, God says that Israel is the dregs of the wine. That's like all of the little gritty like pieces of grape that are in the wine. He says you're gross, you're nasty, you're good for nothing, you're undesirable. Think of the rich young ruler, our idea of justice. It's easy in the Christian context to be okay with what happened because we're so used to hearing the story. But if that person or someone in our family, and they were a good person that could honestly say, I've kept all the commandments since I was a kid. Jesus said, that's not enough to go to heaven. Would we be okay with that? Does our idea of justice and fairness line up with God's? Keith brought up in uh, midweek last week, Isaiah 1, 3, his people don't really know him. I don't think we really know God. I think if we're honest with ourselves, I can... I cannot think that God's standards are reasonable or fair. I think any valuation of a human as worthless or unfaithful is harsh. Think about this in the context of the analogy. He's, he's essentially saying with the virgins, the, bride, the, the groom is like, wedding party, if you don't get this right, if I can't depend on you, you're uninvited. Which in the context of the analogy, it's like, that does seem really harsh. It's kind of like, get over yourself. It's not a, you know, like they forgot the batteries in the flashlight. Like, they're obviously here for you. They love you. They're trying. Like, it's not a big deal. And it, in the context, yes. But in real life, he's saying that to us. Remember, this is to his disciples. This whole discourse, he's talking to the people following him. All of the people in these parables, he's not talking to the masses. He's talking to Christians. So what I can think may sound arrogant or dramatic or childish. God isn't throwing a tantrum on his wedding day. He's on a mission to save lost children for all of eternity. He's trying to wake people up from the matrix. We are in a world at war behind enemy lines with eternal stakes. The gravity of this can't be exaggerated. But his character is good. Over and over again, he begs and pleads to rescue us from ourselves. He wants to love us. He wants to ransom us. The adoption, he wants to pay it. He wants to forgive our debts. In the analogy of the grooms, the fathers, 
um, establishing this marriage in the very beginning of what I was saying, essentially he's, he's saying the bride price, the value of the bride is worth the torture and execution of the groom, my son. That's how much we want the bride and the family. And so I want to remember that thinking about hell or punishment or wrath because the only thing not fair is how we treat God. But it's easy to kind of be on our own island of values and morals. We've got to remind ourselves, okay, there's a creator who created us and it's his absolute standards that matter and we need to learn from him and align ourselves with him and not come to our own conclusions and so even like thinking at the the context of all of the stuff going on in today's world and I feel like it's easy to hear something on the news and just kind of cast judgment like that politician shouldn't have acted that way that celebrity should have known better and we can be pretty careless with our words. Yeah. And I don't think that's okay. I think that says a lot about who we are yeah. and how inadequate we are as a judge. Yeah. So in the context of this, this is all God trying to pull off the greatest heist to save us. The invitation is for everyone. Anyone can be adopted. Anyone can be grafted in. His warning is loving. His justice is fair. More than fair. I'll close with this. May we take a sober look at our preparedness or how are we depending on others especially in the context of 2020. Let that be a good reflection of exposing who we really are and what we believe, how we've acted, how we've lived. Would we be the bridesmaid with oil who's prepared or are we leaning on others and hoping to be innocent by association?